0: Welcome and let's First Talk Compliance. I'm Katherine Short, Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance, a division of Panacea Healthcare Solutions. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high quality complimentary educational resources. Please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on Google, Facebook or iTunes and be sure to follow us on social media and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On today's episode, we are speaking with Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, on the topic of DME POS in compliance with CMS. There are special payment rules associated with durable medical equipment prosthetics, orthotics, and supplies. DME POS products must meet quality standards. Suppliers need to be accepted by Medicare to participate, similar to providers, and are subject to fraud, waste, and abuse laws. This episode will provide an overview of participation and quality requirements, relay the latest compliance and requirements updates, and discuss the consequences of non-compliance as well as submitting false and fraudulent claims before we begin i would like to mention at first healthcare compliance we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals and we celebrate their dedication with our compliance super ninja recognition for this episode we're spotlighting super ninja april collins compliance officer for anesthesiology and pain management consultants April says, what I enjoy the most about working at anesthesiology and pain management are definitely the patients. I very much enjoy helping people and find it very rewarding. Congratulations, April. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. So thank you, Rachel, for joining me on First Talk Compliance. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Catherine, thank you. It's always
1: my pleasure to be here with you and to engage in a meaningful and interesting dialogue on a variety of different
0: topics. Well, thank you. Okay, so as we get started, can you first, for our listeners here on First Talk Compliance, can you give us a what you would define DME POS, what that is exactly?
1: Sure. I think fundamentally it is a type of equipment that is utilized by a person and the setting can vary. Uh, Typically, when you think of Medicare Part B, that would be utilized by a Medicare beneficiary in their home and Medicare Part A would be when a Medicare beneficiary utilizes A piece of DME. And again, DME can range from anything from a wheelchair to a hospital bed to a knee brace after a total knee replacement or an ACL reconstruction to more disposable items that a person who is diabetic or hypoglycemic or is on a certain medication might use that are disposable. And if we think about the diabetic testing strips and the glucometer and the Lancets that are used to pick prick a person's finger. Obviously the glucometer is something that should last for at least 3 years unless there it's defective for some reason. So that's not something that's going to be replaced regularly. However, the lancets and the testing strips are single use. So that's something that is disposable and can be discarded. So those are kind of the range and types of Items that would be considered a durable medical equipment and the types of settings in which they could be utilized, whether it is a skilled nursing facility or an acute care hospital, which would be built in a different manner than if someone is for again, as an example, diabetic and utilizing the glucometer lancets and testing strips on a regular basis. It's important that a person appreciate the difference between a long-term care facility, which in fact could be a person's home and Medicare Part B would apply, or a skilled nursing facility, and while a person is in a SNF, as they're called, for that 100-day period or shorter, depending on what they happen to be there for, it could, in fact, be a Medicare Part A submission instead.
0: Could it include oxygen tanks or medical foods or nutrition or things like that? Or in this case, are we only talking about just equipment type of things? I didn't know if you could, if you would be able to clarify that or is there some kind of difference?
1: Sure. So going back to just DMEPOS, that actually stands for Medicare Durable Medical Equipment, Prosthetics, Orthotics, and Supplies. And you really brought up different rungs of items. If you're looking at certain prescribed nutrition items, that actually might fall under a pharmaceutical, which is separate from DMEPOS, And it's separate for a lot of different reasons. So one would have to make sure as to what category a particular item fell into, whether it falls under a pharmaceutical drug type, Item or if it falls under a DME POS. Specific to oxygen and oxygen equipment, there's actually a fee schedule related with that. And the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, which is found at Public Law. and was signed into law on December 27th of 2020 and effective April 1st of 2021 actually eliminated the budget neutrality requirement set forth in a provision of the Social Security Act for separate classes and national limited monthly payment rates established for any item of oxygen and oxygen equipment. Now, no doubt the pandemic had an impact on that because as anyone is mostly aware, a lot of the issues associated with COVID were respiratory in nature.
0: Right. Um, actually, can we discuss that? So how is COVID-19 impacting the supply or procurement of DME POS So in terms of the claim submission process,
1: a standard written order from the provider is still required. And I'm using the outpatient setting and not inpatient, obviously. With a standard written order, you have to establish medical necessity. And if a person has COVID and they have the residual tests that substantiate the respiratory issues associated with it, meeting medical necessity should not be an issue. So making sure that the requirements for the claims on both the provider side and the supplier side are being met, those really have maintain consistency throughout the pandemic so to speak when you start talking about the supply chain side of the equation as we saw from the outset even with things such as gloves and masks and gowns there has been a an impact on the supply chain side across and it just depends on where a person is and What the issues are at any given time. The last part of that, which is important and which may be, again, given consideration in light of the requirements of a particular code or what's usual. And I mentioned the Lancets for diabetic testing strips. Different people with diabetes may be required or have have a need, I'll say, to test themselves more than before each meal. And the reason could be if they're engaging in an athletic type of activity or they feel a little wonky because they could have come down with a certain medical condition or a virus or something like that, you could see an increase in their use of lancets and testing strips. It doesn't mean they're acting outside of an abnormal use for their particular individual situation, but it is imperative that a medical provider document that, and then that is translated to the supplier. With oxygen and oxygen equipment, as you can imagine, there are CPAP machines there are BiPAP machines, in addition to, I believe, what you articulated earlier with the rolly oxygen tank, right, where a person has a tube that typically Goes into their nose, right? And has two nostrils right. with it. Mm-hmm. So again, there might be a reason that Medicare typically approves, and I don't know the number, so I'm just giving a number, five of those tubes a month. I don't know. But because of COVID and other factors that an individual may have to deal with. The provider will say, well, I want this change more often because bacteria could write form in there, and I don't want that to be reinfecting the patient. So he may request, he or she may request 10, 20, 30, and as long as that, again, meets medical necessity, and then it's brought to the attention of the MAC, so a potential waiver could be gotten and approved, then there should not be an issue. It's when it's just a carte blanche, I'm just gonna ship items, right? Without either an SWO or other requirements and documentation in
0: place. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high quality complimentary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. My guest today is Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, on the topic of DME POS in compliance with CMS. Please show your support by providing a review of First Healthcare Compliance on Google or Facebook. You can also follow us and subscribe on all forms of social media. I wanted to shift ideas for a second. So Anytime there's stuff that can be bought or sold, there's an opportunity for fraud. So could you speak to how DME POS, what the effects are of fraud or where, you know, how fraud has occurred? And then since fraud is, I'm sure, occurring in some places, what are the hottest areas in the U.S. for DME fraud?
1: So I'll take that in in (laughs) bite-size type of process here. So first, I'm going to go with the inverse and answer your your last question first. What areas are hot for DME fraud? Well, if you look at the ZPIC zones and the heat zones that HHS has identified, historically, that has included Texas and Florida. For whatever reason. And so a lot of DME fraud, which really isn't surprising in Florida because it is a hotspot for retirees, and therefore a lot of Medicare beneficiaries live there. Those are two hot spots. Other items, if you look at some recent actions that the Center for Program Integrity and the Center for Medicare Services have taken in conjunction with the FBI and HHS-OIG, which were prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice. That included 17 federal districts, the execution of over 80 search warrants, which resulted in 24 defendants being charged. And these included CEOs, COOs, others associated with five telemedicine companies and owners of dozens of DME companies, as well as three licensed medical professionals who participated in a healthcare fraud scheme involving more than $1.2 billion in losses overall in relation to $1.7 billion in claims that were submitted there were 130 DME companies that were investigated. So again, this was a very significant uh, reach. But if you think about the historical areas where a lot of fraud has been perpetrated in relation to DME and other types of healthcare fraud, Florida, in specific And specifically the Southern District of Florida as well as Texas. And if you look in particular at the Northern District of Texas and the Southern District of Texas, there is a lot of healthcare fraud. So that's the that's the criminal side and that's the reach. If you look at the civil side, that is something that DOJ's civil enforcement division has made a priority because oftentimes illegal inducements which take the form of free items in the routine waiver of co-pays, which can result in overutilization and waste for taxpayer funds those can be brought in any jurisdiction in the country and a very significant case just came out of the middle district of tennessee now the middle district of tennessee is very interesting because it includes nashville and for those of you who know my bio i am a vanderbilt grad so Nashville is near and dear to me, but also one of the reasons I attended Vanderbilt is that Nashville is known as the Silicon Valley of healthcare. And so it's not surprising that not only do we have some of the largest health systems located in Nashville, we also have a lot of ancillary businesses, including DMEs which are located there as well. So at one point, Areva Medical Center was the nation's largest Medicare mail-order diabetic testing supplier. And its parent, Alier, they ended up overshipping and providing free and no-cost glucometers and routinely waiving or not collecting co-payments for meters and the diabetic testing supplies, which include those lancets and the testing strips that I mentioned. And basically, that type of fraud and submission occurred from April 2010 until the end of 2016, And it cost that company over $160 million to resolve those allegations. For those who are interested in the citation, this case was brought under the False Claims Act, and it is captioned at United States ex-relator Goodman versus Ariva Medical LLC et al. And it's case number 313 CV zero, zero, seven, six, zero. And it is out of the middle district of Tennessee.
0: Is there a certain percentage of people who are accidentally caught up in fraud, doing something incorrectly and just over and over doing something incorrectly? I mean, how often does that happen?
1: So I think you raise an excellent point because as the Sister webinar to this illustrated. It's imperative in terms of compliance that you really train your staff. You make sure that they're up to date on the correct codes and you have an outside third-party auditor come in at least once a year to make sure that a statistical sampling is done to ensure that the claims that are being submitted are being coded correctly and that they're meeting the regulatory requirements, as well as the national coverage determination and local coverage determinations, which are set forth by the MACs to ensure that people aren't doing it to your point on a regular basis. And that's really part of adopting a valid compliance program and cultivating a culture of compliance. There is a thin line at a certain point between what constitutes negligence and what constitutes reckless disregard for truth or falsity of the information. And that's where having the ongoing training and everything else can be absolutely critical to the success and viability of and organization and avoiding and mitigating the risk of an enforcement action, whether it is through an administrative agency such as HHS and OIG, or through a whistleblower case under the False Claims Act.
0: Can DME POS suppliers be excluded from Medicare? Is that a possibility?
1: Absolutely. And They, Because they are a participating provider, they are just as susceptible as any other individual or entity from being excluded by Medicare or alternatively having to enter into a corporate integrity agreement.
0: Okay, and what type of items should auditors consider?
1: So, a type of item that an auditor should consider, one item is making sure that that SWO, the standard written order, is in place. Secondly, making sure that it's updated annually. Third, making sure that the medical record documents the medical necessity from the provider side and then from the supplier side, making sure that that SWO is on file, that they have all of the appropriate signatures, that they're not stamped and that they're meeting both the national coverage determinations and local coverage determinations, in addition to the Regulatory and Medicare manual requirements. Finally, on the DME side, the number of items and the waiver of copays should also be looked into.
0: Okay, I think I just had one last question, and if you could just expand on how a either hospital administrative team or even a practice administrator in an office could cultivate a culture of compliance.
1: Okay, so cultivating a culture of compliance is a phrase that is set forth by the government, and cultivating a culture of compliance is really realistic, and just like HIPAA, And the final omnibus rule, which is at 78 Federal Register 5566, and it was published on January 25th of 2013, states, you can't get a certificate, right, for being HIPAA compliant. And the government says they don't accept that. Sure, you can get training certificates. You can indicate that you strive to cultivate a culture of compliance. But the minute someone posts something or sends a bill out to the wrong person, you're no longer compliant with HIPAA, right? So cultivating a culture of compliance means having the requisite items that are required to meet compliance measures to ensure that you're acting in accordance with the relevant laws and regulations. And a key component to doing that, whether it's HIPAA or you're looking at claim submissions, is to make sure that, A, you have adequate policies and procedures, B, to make sure that your staff and providers are trained on what is accurate and truthful and what needs to be substantiated in the medical record and also what needs to be sent to the supplier. And then on the supplier side, what they need to keep and what they need to provide in the event of an audit, right, by either a recovery audit contractor, a ZPIC contractor, or a MAC contractor with the government. So all of that is absolutely uh, critical to document and then ensuring that you have the third party person come in and articulate to people where mistakes have been made, if there's a requirement to pay the government for back overpayments that you weren't aware of, and the risk that comes along with that. So cultivating a culture of compliance, again, it needs to be done in substance over then form and I always like to use the Tommy boy movie example I can crap in a box and stamp it guaranteed then I'd have a guaranteed piece of crap you don't want the guaranteed piece of crap you want something that guarantees a product or in this case a compliance program that is absolutely substantive and in good faith when the government comes in or a lawsuit, God forbid, ensues that you as an organization or a hospital executive team or an individual providers team or a DME company can say, you know what, we didn't just give this lip service. This is what we do in order to make sure that we're adhering to all the regulations. And even if some items got through, it can be a very significant mitigating factor in terms of the amount of the penalty or the corporate integrity agreement being assessed or not being assessed. It is a very dynamic area and a very dynamic time. And I think the more proactive organizations could be is where transitioning out of COVID and getting out of this treading water period to really moving forward uh, personally and professionally, I think that's going to become more and more of a focus for the government.
0: Okay, thank you, Rachel, for this comprehensive presentation. And we haven't had a presentation like this from this perspective. So I very much Appreciate you sharing your expert advice with us. So thank you for being on. Do you have any other words of advice that you'd like to leave with us concerning our presentation today about durable medical equipment? The only
1: items that I would reemphasize are when an entity implements a compliance program and tries to cultivate a culture of compliance, make sure that it is robust, that it's reviewed at least annually, and that training is included with that. Because when the government comes in and if you're on the receiving end as a defendant in a False Claims Act case or a love letter from HHS OIG, you can potentially have a mitigating factor by having valid and robust compliance program. But again, it has to be genuine, and they do look at the substance over the form of those types of
0: programs. Okay, well, thank you so much for being on First Talk Compliance today. And thank you, Catherine. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance You can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Short at firsthcc.com. I'm Katherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.